I'm honored again to be here this evening. One little housekeeping chore. I have a friend who's an evangelist, and he goes from church to church, and, and he's almost giving the altar call before he gets started. That's his gifting. And when I go to churches, I like to um, have a variety of things, um, things to encourage us, things to build us up, things to challenge us, uh, an evangelistic theme. And then some nights I share things that are a burden on my heart, things that, that I think we need to work at to do better. And that's where I'm going tonight. I was talking to Brother Wesley as I left for supper, and, and I would like to talk to the youth one night, and you all are going to decide when that's going to be, if it's going to be Friday or or Saturday. And I'm going to tell you what happened to me. I was asked to have meetings a long ways from home, and I drove 800 miles that day and got to this church and got up and told the people that I wanted to have one night with the youth. And, and did they want it Friday night or Saturday night? Which night did they want it? And it seemed they all kind of settled on Saturday night. I said, okay, then it'll be Saturday night. I didn't consult with the ministry, the church leaders. Well, I went back to the house where I stayed and my phone started to buzz and I looked and here it was the local deacon at that church and he says buddy you're messing up I said we planned a volleyball tournament this weekend and uh, the young people are not going to be there Saturday night and I thought well that's strange you invite me to drive 800 miles and you're having a volleyball tournament and you want me to preach um, I think that's a little funny priorities but that was their culture I guess but don't do me that way. <laughs> okay. I have an opportunity for some young people to say their little proverb. And so who wants to say it? Remember from last night. All right, I'm going to start picking on people. The little girl there beside Brother Nathan, were you here last night? Oh, you're a bomber. All right, Donovan, is that your name? What's your name? Clayton, okay. Did you memorize it? Okay, you stand up and turn around. There you go. Very good. I'd give you a star if I had one. Very good. Okay, if I ask you in a couple years, will you be able to say that? Good. For tomorrow night, uh, you're you're good. You don't you need to learn this, but I'm not gonna call on you. For tomorrow night, remember this one: there is no honorable way to do a dishonorable thing. You got that? You need your mama to write it down. Say it with me, everybody. There is no honorable way to do a dishonorable thing. I believe that with all my heart. And so I'm going to let some child um, say that tomorrow night. 
young person. One of the things that Paul teaches and mentions in Scripture that is profitable for doctrine or for teaching, and good doctrine is so important, it determines what we think and how we view the issues of life. And it is so critical in our conduct towards God and others. Poor doctrine makes for an excuse of sloppy living. I I really believe that. So what I want to share about tonight is my conviction for our undergirding faith in love and non-resistance and separation in church and state. And you say, well, that's a really weird thing to talk about at revival meetings. I don't think the Anabaptist people did COVID very good. I really don't think we did too good. I think that we've lost... um, some of our basic moorings, the way that there was this individualistic spirit or this um, what's in it for me or I don't care about you. And it's really unfortunate some of the ugliness that happened. I don't think it would have had to be that way. Most of us, a lot of us have grown up and were taught in the Anabaptist tradition where we made it one of our particulars to practice a literal interpretation of Scripture, and that there should be a conference effort made to make it practical and applicable in our life choices. And so sometimes we're often grieved by those of our neighbors or our our family members who succumb to the pressures of a worldly heart or immorality or a lust for material things a loss of spiritual fervor, and maybe even church attendance, and it grieves us. But yet we yet rarely see our young people rushing off to enlist into the military. I can think of three. My father tells me of some of his peers uh, when he was growing up as a teenager in the World War II era, uh, were not born again, uh, some Old Order Mennonite boys in particular, and who were not born again, lived wicked lives, and who were either imprisoned or enlisted in the army, and some lost their life. It is a bedrock and core conviction, a part of our faith and practice, and one that is even struggling in many other ways and losing their grasp of core faith and practice is very slow to want to rush off and become involved in the military. And so long after we ditched all evidences of conservative Anabaptist faith and practice, we still tend to want to protect this one thing. Why is that? And so why is it so important to teach and to understand this whole bedrock doctrinal foundations of our faith? And practice. It's because we may never know. We may never know when we'll be called upon to respond in a Christ like way when our heart and emotions are a long ways off and tell us that what we are feeling in our head is not what we know in our heart is right. I'm going to read you a story. It's something that happened to our family. 21 years ago this coming May, it's, it's not that you need to pity us. 
It's the path that God chose for us. Some of you are familiar with it. Gideon. The accident happened late on a Thursday afternoon, and many people drove from far and wide to go to the crash site to see the wreckage of the plane. On Friday afternoon, National Transport and Safety Board had the wreckage removed from the cotton field and put in a hangar at the Bamberg County Airport where they could reassemble the wreckage of the plane and try to determine what went wrong. Now, National Transport and Safety Board does an investigation on all aircraft accidents, large or small. And when it has started, and then it started to rain, a cool, rainy drizzle into the night and the next day. The weather, overcast and gray, and the drizzle totally fit my mood of sadness and loss. Just before lunch on Saturday, I got a call from NTSB, and they said that they wanted to meet with me at the airport. I was in no mood to go out and meet the public, let alone meet with these men that I felt sure would tell me that the plane was fine. Probable cause of the crash would be pilot error. I told them that I didn't think I wanted to meet them. The man on the other end of the phone line said, We think it is very important that you come. We have some very conclusive findings that may help your family process this loss. I drove alone to the airport and went into the hangar, and there standing around the wreckage of Gideon's plane were four men in uniform and armed. I don't know why. The fixed-based operator was there as well, and he had done some of the inspections on the plane that my brother Don and I had owned together. The airplane lay all across the hangar floor and as close to a reconstruction as possible. Finally, one of the men began to talk, and he said that he thought that it would be helpful that I would want to know why the plane went down and that it would probably give our hearts some rest, peace, and closure. The cause of the crash was not pilot error, but mechanical failure. And then he proceeded to show me his findings and what conclusions he, they had come to as a team. On most aircraft, the nuts on almost all the bolts have a castle nut and a safety wire going through them so that the nut cannot vibrate loose or come off. This particular aircraft had an extensive overhaul and some conversions for aerobatics, and soon before we purchased it, and the man that owned the plane did the work and signed it off his own self instead of another mechanic. In short, many crucial bolts were never safetyed. The pin that connects the elevator cable to the control stick came out. Thus, Gideon lost his ability to have forward and aft pitch. It put him in about a 30-degree dive with no possible way to recover. He no doubt knew that something was horribly wrong and shut off the engine and tried to land in Myron Brubaker's cotton field. The plane hit hard, and the cockpit was crushed on impact. The NTSB officer showed me other flaws that were an accident waiting to happen. Again, a case where the plane was inspected every year and a certificate of air Worthiness was issued by a mechanic without pulling up the floorboards and giving a thorough inspection. And then the official from the NTSB said something like this. 
Not even Chuck Yeager or St. Peter could have landed that airplane. I thought you should know it was not your son's fault. After a few minutes to let all of this sink in, the NTSB officer then asked me this question. Would you like for us to represent you in a court case against the one who has been falsifying the mechanical logbooks and the certificate of airworthiness of the aircraft your son was flying? And it was at that point that it became clear to me that someone's carelessness had caused Gideon and Jerry to be killed. And there was a minute, maybe five minutes, that I needed to be sure that the biblical teaching and principles of not being an aggressor in the court of law or turning the other cheek were not just some wonderful sounding idea in some utopian place and the time, but it, utopian place and time, but to forgive and to follow the teachings of Jesus when it was within our grasp, to seek revenge for the thoughtless actions of someone who had caused our son's accident and death. I responded, No amount of money will bring my son back to life, and I'm sure that the one whose mistakes caused Gideon's death feels terrible and guilty already. My answer is no. Are you sure, he asked again, and I thanked them for the help that they gave and the work that they did for us. And I walked out of the hangar and out into the gray, foggy drizzle and sat in my vehicle for a while to process all that I had been told by those who investigated the accident. I must choose to forgive as Christ has forgiven me. And I surrendered my heart and will to God and he gave me peace. And as I wrote this account, my heart is stirred again with how important that our life and actions are reflections of the teachings and examples of Christ, even when we have been served a terrible wrong. Non-resistance is not primarily a non-participation in war or being part of the military machine. It is a way of life and has many broad implications. First of all, it was not practiced in the Old Testament as we know it in the New. And if we do not rightly divide between the two covenants and God's plan for the New Testament church, we will never get this important doctrine right. It will be very confusing not only to us, but to those who watch us and are looking on and we leave them a trail of confusion and inconsistency. And I've taught Winter Bible School for Many years, and one of the classes I taught, do you teach it now? Love and non-resistance. And on my exam every year, where do you find the verses that support non-resistance in the Old Testament? And every year, Hezekiah, Jeremiah, Haggai, there aren't any. It's not there. The principles of love are there. But it's eye for an eye and a tooth for two. Jesus turned the whole thing on its head. And that's the dispensation that we live in. 
There's three major passages in the New Testament, and the first one comes from Matthew 5, verse 38 to 48. You're familiar with that. And if I was teaching the class, I'd tell you to memorize these now. That way you'd have a, a leg up on the thing. You wouldn't have so much homework. But anyway, <clears throat> Matthew 5, 38 to 48, you have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right, turn to him the other also. And if any man sue thee at law, take away thy coat, let him have your cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go with him a mile, go with him twain, give to him that would ask of thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn thou not away. Now, I don't have time to tell you this story, but uh, of him that would borrow thee, turn thou not away. You know, I I had uh, bought a, a new excavator a few years ago, and and you know when you know pieces of equipment are expensive. Those of you who farm and run run equipment, it's expensive stuff, and so you just let anybody have it. Him that would ask to borrow thee, turn thou not away. That's what the Bible says, and that's. People would just come get my excavator and go off with it. Didn't even ask sometimes. And they would come home with the lights dangling and and this being out of shape. And, and then I read the verses about the early church where they suffered gladly the spoiling of their goods. And it made me feel bad. That, you know, we can be really attached to stuff. Uh, where was I reading? I was just extra, didn't no charge. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good unto them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth the rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. All right, then we go to Romans chapter 12, 17 to 21. And here we get the directives for good interpersonal relationships uh, relating to those who want to harm us. Romans 12, 17 to 21. Recommence no man evil for evil. Provide all things honest in the sight of all men. And if possible, as much as lieth within you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him a drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. We know those verses, but do we live them out? Now, directions for a proper view of the two kingdom concept of Christ and the state, the church and state relationships. Romans 13, verse 1 to 8, you know these verses. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. 
and the powers to be ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resisteth shall receive into themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then be afraid of the power? Then do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if you do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore unto all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another has fulfilled the law. There are many other verses that we could go to to reinforce and support and build up these three basic groups of verses that I just read. And I don't have time to list them all. Remember, when developing a doctrine, we take the whole counsel of Scripture. We don't pick and choose. You know, when people pick fruit, they leave these and pick those. And, and um, Brother I know Wesley's father-in-law, Mr. Tim Myers, in the strawberry business. And he don't like when people come pick his strawberries and they just pick the pretty ones and leave the wrinkly ones and they step on the other ones. That isn't the way you form doctrine. You take all the counsel of Scripture and build your doctrines. And so that's what we want to do tonight. <clears throat> Proverbs 15.1. I told you that the Old Testament doesn't have our core doctrines, but there is verses that we need to learn. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Uh, there's a man called me one day from Pennsylvania, and he was so Dutchy I hardly could understand him. But what it was, he's he's in the bee business, and he has semi loads of bees, and he always carries his bees to Florida to overwinter. And he's not in the honey business; he's in the business of growing hives, multiplying hives so that he can send them to California to pollinate the almond crop. And he thought that if he'd send him to South Carolina, he wouldn't have so much freight and shipping in him and, and less competition. So he asked if he could. And so he brought all these bees. And I was busy maybe planting corn. I don't remember. And one morning I get a text from the neighbor lady and from Mrs. Hawkins. And it goes like this. I'm not sure how to word this. My husband and I are concerned about the placement of your bees. It is an area that we really appreciate because we have a few fruit trees across the fence from the hives and our main concern that is less than 50 yards from our front porch. Now, I'm not sure if you're sending us a message or not. You have such a vast amount of property and acreage, so she thinks. We just don't know why you would want to put them bees that close to the area that we out 
streets or outside so frequently. Would it be possible to move them further down the fence line? Now, we know that once a colony has been established, it's more difficult to move them. And we're just wondering that since they're freshly placed there, if they could just go a little bit further down from our house. Jeff and Darlene Hawkins. And then I quickly responded, I am so sorry. The only message that we would ever want to send to you is love and goodwill. There's a commercial beekeeper from Pennsylvania that has hundreds of hives wintering over here, and he's trying South Carolina instead of going all the way to Florida. And we pretty much gave him access to the whole farm where cattle can't get in and upset his hives. And he has many hives at other places on our farm, and I was not aware that he, or ever thought that he would set some of them by you. I will contact him to see if, if he's coming back, if he would let me move them. Oh, when he's coming back. But I will be on it first thing this morning. I am under the impression that all bees go back to Pennsylvania for the summer, but perhaps that's not soon enough. Again, we hope that you are sure that we would never intentionally do something that would be or could be interpreted as hostile or not in Christ's loves toward you or any of our neighbors. Again, I am so sorry. Boy, it wasn't long that woman come over to the dairy and she got out and she was hugging our necks and, and we, man, we've been tight ever since. You got to be careful how you respond to people trying to be ugly to you. Well, you know, maybe it's just so simple as how you relate to your animals. Proverbs twelve ten, A righteous man cares for the needs of his animals. But the kindest act of the wicked are cruel. I know a brother from another state, and he was telling me about his dad milked cows in a stanchion barn, a flat barn, and, and his dad was the bishop. And he said when a cow would misbehave and kick the milker pail or whatever, he said you could hear my dad up there muttering and grumbling at that cow, and he one time he heard him say, I cannot kick thee, nor can I beat thee, but I can sell thee to my Methodist neighbor who will stab thee with a pitchfork. <laughs> and as we've heard before, each generation must make the core principles of our faith practical in our own lives. Grandpa's faith will not cover poor choices made by the following generations. <laughs> The man's grandson that wouldn't stab his own cow was one of the three that I'm telling you that went to the military. He would turn over in his grave if he knew. Non-resistance is not the same as pacifism. Now, Some church groups use the term interchangeably and often the government or other official institutions refer to the traditional peace churches as pacifist churches and that includes Mennonite brethren, German Baptist Quaker, some Pentecostal, Nazarene, and Apostolic churches as these nonviolent or pacifist churches. Pacifism is this. It fails to distinguish between the legitimate functions and methods of the state or federal government and those of the church and individual Christians. Pacifists especially honor the teachings 
and practices of Gandhi, a nonviolent protester of British rule in India in the early 1900s. They also admire the teachings of the American pacifist Martin Luther King. But Gandhi and King did not practice non-resistance, but rather promoted a non-violent resistance to what they considered evil and oppressive. The church has always taught that man's fallen nature must be controlled. And so a pacifist opposes war and the use of force, but is not motivated by Christ or biblical teachings to love his enemy. He just don't like to get bloody. Remember this, a pacifist still has a what? A fist. Okay, that's the difference. Um, Mr. John and Dale cannot answer this question. How many of y'all remember Cassius Clay? Oh, no, no. Dale, do you remember Cassius Clay? Anybody else? Oh, yeah, you do. Nobody else remembers Cassius Clay. All right. Oh, yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you would. You got to have white hair or no hair to remember no Cassius Clay. <laughs> How many of y'all have heard of or remembered Muhammad Ali? Same guy. Muhammad Ali was his Islamic name, but he, when he was back when he was Baptist, he was Cassius Clay. Same guy. Now Cassius Clay, now known as Muhammad Ali, in 1966 was drafted to serve in the U.S. military in Vietnam. He refused to enlist and proclaimed to be a pacifist. He was remembered as saying this, and I quote, I ain't got no quarrel with them Viet Cong and shoot them for what? They never called me nigger. You see, that's all he heard growing up in his evangelical communities by upstanding white Christians. But those people over in Vietnam never called him derogatory names. Why should he go over and blow them up? That's a legitimate question. But it's not the motivation for not hurting other people. He was sentenced to five years in prison, fined $10,000, and an appeal was made, and he was stripped of his passport, denied a boxing license, license, but was never really incarcerated. Yet he had no problem knocking the stuffing out of anyone or verbally assaulting them with his cruel and bitter tongue. He was a pacifist. He was not non-resistant. If I made my point, okay. On April the 30th, 1975, the Vietnam War ended. And the requirement for 18-year-old American males to register with the draft soon ended as well. Many or most of you do not remember that. It is In other words, you have to have been born in 1956 or before to have been drafted or to have to have registered with the old draft. It is easy to think that it has always been that way and it will probably always be that way. 
Acts 27.13. And when a gentle, soft south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. But before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down on the island, and the ship was caught in the storm and could not head into the wind, and so we gave way to it and were driven along. And as we passed the lee of a small island called Caudia, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. And I read that verse because I think today, this evening, a storm is brewing in America, in Canada and Europe as well, and it troubles me. Harsh and strong opinions expressed about our government leaders and those whose opinions that we may disagree with. Over and over again, Jesus taught us about his kingdom and the kingdom of God and that our citizenship is in heaven. Romans 13, I read you those verses. And we see God's plan for the separation of church and state. And when John the Baptist came and he taught over and over again, repent for what? The kingdom of God is at hand. And so what is this kingdom of God? When Jesus' ministry began in Matthew 4, 17, it says, For that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so throughout all of his time on earth, Jesus preached and taught about his kingdom. And so what does it really mean to live in community where everyone knows God and tries to imitate Christ's behavior and character in their own lives and in their neighborhoods. Throughout the duration of Christ's ministry on earth, and then with his disciples' teachings afterwards, the kingdom of God has one central theme. And here are some of the things about it. And I want to give credit here to your very own Daniel Miller who um, allowed me to use some of his notes, and I want to share an example from him. God uses people to make it grow, or we're fishers of men, Mark 1.14. It supersedes the law and the prophets, Luke 16.16. 16. It has a current reality. It's happening right now. It's not something that's going to happen in the future. It's not something that happened in the past. The kingdom of God is here right now. It exalts the humble and pulls down the proud, Luke chapter 1. The real estate was in the hearts and minds of its citizens, John 4, 21. It is not in this world and is not conquered or enlarged by force, John 18. Its policies never change, Hebrews 13, 8. All of its citizens are, citizens are equally important, Galatians 3, 28. And it is made up of a people from every corner of the planet, regardless of their nationality or their ethnicity. Aren't you glad that there's going to be some Martins in heaven and some heat woes and, and all you other names? It tells us in the book of Revelation, every nation, every tribe, every language, every hue of skin color will be some of them there. Does this sound like your and my America? 
It ain't the way it sounds down where I live. There's a lot of hostility against authority and against government. And it's so important that we rightly divide between our place as citizens and kingdoms of God in earthly kingdoms. What it really boils down to perhaps is this. In Matthew 6.33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. And so when the kingdom of God is growing and expanding and thriving, we should be very happy or thrilled about that. You know, it's way bigger than the thrill that we get from who wins a ball game or who wins an election or where you're going on to your next vocation or blowing up furry animals in Colorado or whatever it is that turns your crank. You know what makes you happy? And you know what throws you into a sour mood? Is it something that has to do with growing the kingdom of God? Or is it more fleshly and personal or even? And how do you passionately advance the kingdom of God? All of us have thousands and thousands of choices that we need to make daily. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your energy? Your quota of worries. Who are your heroes? And what gives you a thrill or throws you into a sour mood? Well, I would like to suggest some things to think about. When you seek first the kingdom of God, you choose to bless others rather than indulging on yourself and the things that make you look and feel good. So, if is everybody here Americans and Canadians here? Germans? Italians, everybody's okay. As a good American, do you wear red, white, and blue on the 4th of July? Do you sing the Star-Spangled Banner in your family devotions or in your church on the Sunday of the 4th of July weekend? I mean, you want to be a good American. Uh, do you recite the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, especially in public assemblies? See, you all, uh, young people don't know what that is. Do you know what the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag is? You don't. You see, we used to go to public school and, and they'd stand up and you had to cross your heart. And, you know, we had this paralysis in our shoulder and, and we'd get our hand about up to our belt and we didn't want to t the teacher be looking around thinking we was not patriotic, but we somehow we knew that we weren't supposed to, but we didn't know why. And so that's one of the blessings of the Christian school that's really, you need to know these things. And so I don't know who your teacher is, but maybe he needs to tell you about the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag and why when you're out in society, you should or shouldn't do these things. Okay? There was a whole lot of other things we learned in public school. It, uh, it made us think. It was us and them. Right, John? All right. Well, do you go to political rallies of your favorite candidates and party affiliation? Do you get your picture taken with your favorite candidate? Do you get all narrow-minded and bent out of shape and forward toxic or undocumented nonsense 
from social media and YouTube with people that you don't agree with of your political views? Or do you vote for who you think will be the best leaders, especially those who say they are Christian or Republican? 2 Timothy 2.4 No one who is engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who has enlisted him as a soldier. If you're in the U.S. military, you don't want to be carrying a backpack from the Canadian government. As good people that they are, you want to be carrying the tools and the, the necessities of the U.S. government. As a, but yet, Christians become so engrossed and engaged in, in getting all the material and the paraphernalia of this opposing enemy army. Politics are often very divisive and make for strange bedfellows, sometimes pitting families and marriage partners against each other. I read a letter uh, to an advice columnist. This lady wrote in, and how many of y'all remember Barry Goldwater? He was the first President Trump. He, he was just, had a really abrasive personality and... Um, very divisive in his uh, politics. He was back in the 1960s. This lady wrote in, she says, he burns the hairs out of his nose with a match, and he thinks I'm the one who's crazy because I voted for Goldwater. And so you see, you have here a husband and wife who are become estranged to each other over politics. That's not for the Christian to decide. All right, here's where I'm going to share Brother Daniel Miller's testimony. And he, he, he shared this with me and he told me I could use it. For as long as I can remember, I liked politics. My interests were kind of unique, so while other boys my age were playing basketball and were discussing tractors, I would pore over the encyclopedias and memorize the names of the presidents. The only source of news was the U.S. News and World Report in the newspaper. I devoured them. And by the 1988 election at 13, I was mesmerized by the political process. I had chosen a candidate that I wanted to re win the Republican nomination, Jack Kemp. And when he dropped out, I cried. And as the years went by, I continued to follow politics. Always had a favorite candidate, always a diehard Republican. And in the 2000 election, I was very frustrated when I thought that Al Gore was trying to steal the presidential election from George Bush. But a number of things happened in the following years, and that one was that as I taught in the public schools right down here in Harrisonburg, I ran into people who had a very different political view than my own, seemingly nice people who were Democrats, of all things, and I was so taken up by politics that I sometimes couldn't resist expressing my views in a time or so, and rightly so, a fellow teacher questioned me, so you don't vote, but yet you have plenty of ideas about how who should be in office. Now, how does that work? It made me think. Defending American foreign policy is counterproductive as we relate to people either within our own nationality or, but more particularly, with other nationalities. And so there's many examples, many examples. 
And so it has fallen my lot to travel a lot. And sometimes I travel overseas. Do you know that people do not think that Americans are awesome and cool? Sometimes it's better to not identify with the Americans who are seen by the rest of the world as arrogant, know-it-all, and cocky. That is not what serious followers of the meek and lowly Jesus want to exhibit as they relate to other nations and other cultures. Fairly or unfairly, Muslims in the Middle East like uh, feel like the U.S. is biased against them and they really don't understand it. Why we're always in favor of Israel. Well, you know, they're the chosen people. and other. But we're talking about politics. We're not talking about the church. And so is it right for Israelis to treat Islamic people brutally and wrong? Wrong is wrong. I don't care who you are, what color your skin is. But yet we've been taught from little up that you always take the side of the Israeli. I mean, he's Abraham's children. That's not our place. We are the church. We are to grow the church. Israeli, Jordan, uh, Iraq, uh, all of them. And so it pops up uh, in places like Iraq, which were after over 15 years of the Iraq war, Americans are still very unpopular there because... We went in and toppled their leader, as nasty as he was, and they've had a very unstable, blood-letting government ever since. It's our fault. So they feel. And think about what happened to Afghanistan within the last year. American forces went in and just brutally blowed the place up and then pulled back, took their people out, and left everybody else to suffer at the hands of the Taliban. Is that the mission of the church? Don't get involved with government. South and Central America has a lot of animosity towards Americans because of unfair drug rules and unfair immigration rules. I don't have the time to tell you, but we have a Nicaraguan living and working on our farm who walked to Texas and was deported and came back on a bus. And he showed up at our farm with a plastic bag and a piece of paper that said that he was processed as an undocumented um, immigrant. You know, Ukrainians are white people, and they can come in in droves. They get their plane fares paid. They get food stamps. They're in a deplorable situation. But if you're brown, speak Spanish, and are walking up from the bottom, go away. It's not our place to tell the government to build the wall or what. I was so frustrated. This pious, conservative, Anabaptist guy called me up, and he was on a roll by President Trump, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And he was a build-the-wall sort of a guy. And I said, so where did your relatives come from? And um, why should they be here um, just because they're good Germans and... They're white, and these poor people down there don't don't have, they're poor as a stick. All they want is a job. And so you come in and slam the door shut, 
and he tried to justify this thing, and I just got, I just couldn't wait till we hung up the phone. I'm starting to, I thought I was going to rupture a corpuscle or something. Stay out of politics. It is not the place of the church. We are part of the kingdom of God. The point is not whether these assumptions are right or correct. The point is that it's such a blessing not to have to defend U.S. government policies in light of such accusations. I am not involved. My kingdom is not of this world. It's been so much fun or such a blessing to live in a 75% African-American county and tell those people that my grandparents and grandparents and their parents did not own slaves, but paid them when they come to help. And I went to school with those people. And they're my friends. And so it's just better to stay out of controversy in politics. That's not our calling. My citizenship is in the kingdom of God, not in the U.S. or Canada. But by far, the most important citizenship I have is in the kingdom of God. We're only a guest here. We should be much more concerned how our fellow members in the kingdom of God are affected than we should be concerned about how decisions of government affect us. <coughs> that was northern Indiana having meetings <coughs> not long ago, years ago. And this guy came up to me and, man, Trump is awesome. And you know, I don't. He didn't have that red hat that said "Make America Great Again," but he had it on his heart. But anyway, he was just Trump was awesome. And after I talked to this guy a little while, I tried just to kind of change the subject, and it dawned on me that what he really believed is Trump is going to make us rich again. That's not our calling. We must be more concerned about how our fellow members in the kingdom of God are affected than how our government choices affects me. Political decisions that are advantageous to Americans can often have horrible implications for Christians in the other part of the world. We're locked into a cheap energy policy. I got a statistic the other day you know, a lot of countries, we're paying $3 a gallon for fuel, and we think that's high. Well, it, 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 it soon runs up. A lot of countries, if they can get it, it's 7 and $8. And they're just, but yet we think it's our right. We will have cheap fuel, or we will come blow your country up. You know, that's a little bit simple, but it's kind of the thinking of a lot of, you know, we've got these SUVs back in America, and they take a lot of fuel, and, and it needs to be cheap. That's how the average evangelical American thinks, and way too many Anabaptist people. Many times what we may think are excellent and wonderful American policies are actually not helpful, but very hurtful to people in other parts of the world. When we truly understand our citizenship is in God's kingdom, then we are more concerned about how current events affect God's kingdom than how they affect ourselves or our families or our country of origin. 
my generation was asked to go to Vietnam. An older generation was asked to go to Korea. Dale, do you remember George and John Thomas? Well, we went to school with them. I think John was your, or maybe a great, George was a little older. But anyway, John got sent to Vietnam and he got, I remember, he got killed in Vietnam and came home in a coffin. And it was kind of a, uh, an awkward thing being a Mennonite when one of the local boys from Dayton got killed in patriotic service. All right, back to my, my generation was asked to go to Vietnam, an older generation to Korea, my parents' generation to Europe in World War II. Paul Good, Daniel Brubaker, Sanford Blosser, men that I remember and knew and was a peer and friend, school friends with some of their children, all went into civilian public service camps and left their wives at home. Albert Yoder went to Germany for three years and never saw his girlfriend one time during that whole duration of his service there. This generation is asked to wear a mask in public, and it's become a very strong political statement or identity with a harsh, independent, what-is-good-for-me movement, and it's very troubling to me. This is not the kind of trees you want to be planting for the spiritual shade and protection of future generations. I'm not a mask guy. But my generation says, go over in Vietnam and blow these people up and get shot at. And we was very careful how we responded to them. But now we've been so far removed from that, people think you can just tell the government where to get off and what to do. That's where we're at. Consistency, consistency, consistency. Abraham did not get his 15 to 20-year-old son up on the altar and lay real still by giving, living a life of inconsistency and sending his boy confusing signals about life's goal and devotion to the will and call of God in his life. Your children will know what really is important to you, your priorities, and the things that you put first, and how you both start and end your day. Where I live, there's a saying that says that you can tell if you spend too much time in a deer stand if you have moss growing on the north side of your pants legs. Well, maybe that's not a real high pressure point here. But um, where are you on Wednesday night or Sunday night? Do you have equal or more fervor to be in church as you do to finish a job or blow up furry animals? Don't expect your children to be more devout and more dedicated to building the kingdom of God and the work of the church than what they see in you. I have an idea that the government and draft board will know your priorities as well. When I was a boy, my dad hired a lot of different people, and some of them come over from West Virginia. And one of them was Paul Champ, and some of you all may remember and know you, you know him. And he worked for my dad, and this was during the Vietnam War, and we was eating lunch one day, and there was a knock on the door. 
And Dad went out on the porch, and the man was standing there, and and he opened his little jacket, and it wasn't this little pocket I was talking about last night. He had a badge in here that said FBI. And he wanted to know about Paul Champ. You see, back in West Virginia, the draft boards weren't used to Mennonite boys just coming in and said, oh, CO, CO, check, check. They wanted to know if he caroused, if he was wild, if he drank, if he drove wickedly. And what kind of a guy? And my dad was able to give him a good report. You see, we have the internet now. There's nothing they don't know about young people anymore. So don't be fooled. I want to read you a poem. How are you raising your son? <clears throat> You're raising cotton and corn, you say, as fine as the earth will grow. You're raising cattle and hogs and poultry that win wherever you go. Oh, you're raising wheat that is hard to beat. And I know you're counting the mun, but tell me this, O oh man of the soil, how are you raising your son? Do you take the time to talk to him of things that he ought to know? Do you show him the good and the bad of life and teach him the way he should go? Does he trust you as a son should do? Do you make him a friend or a slave? Will he stand out someday from his fellow men, honest, Pure and brave. Oh, cotton and peanuts and wheat and corn are things that are well to grow and cattle and chickens and a bank account can be good for a man. I know. But the ribbon you take and the money you make will bring but a mite of joy if you get to the top of the hill one day and find you've made a scrub of your boy. And in closing, I want to read you from Philip Yancey, Rumors of Another World. <clears throat> Grace is irrational, unfair, unjust, and only makes sense if I believe in another world governed by a merciful God who always offers another chance. When the world sees grace in action, it falls silent. Nelson Mandela taught the world a lesson in grace when after emerging from prison after 27 years and being elected president of South Africa, he asked his jailer to join him on the inaugural platform. He was then appointed Archbishop Desmond Tutu to head an official government panel with a daunting name, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. Mandela sought to defuse the neutral natural pattern of revenge that he had seen in so many countries when one oppressed race or tribe took control from another. For the next two and a half years, South Africans listened to reports of atrocities coming out of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee hearings. The rules were simple. If a white policeman or an army officer voluntarily faced his accusers, confessed his crime, and fully acknowledged his guilt, then he could be tried and punished for that crime. He could not be tried or punished. Hardliners grumbled about the obvious injustice of letting criminals go free. But Mandela insisted that the country needed healing even more than it needed justice. At one hearing, a policeman named Vandebroek recounted an incident when he and other officers shot an 18-year-old boy and burned his body, 
turning it on the fire like a piece of barbecue meat in order to destroy the evidence. Eight years later, when Vondie Brook returned into the same house and seized the boy's father, the mother was forced to watch as policemen bound her husband on a wood pile, poured gasoline over his body, and ignited it. The courtroom grew hushed as the elderly widow, who had lost first her son and then her husband, was given a chance to respond. What do you want from Mr. Vondibrook? the judge asked. She said she wanted Vondibrook to go to the place where they burned her husband's body and gather up the dust so that she could give him a decent burial. His head down, the policeman nodded agreement. And then she added a further request. Mr. Vondibrook, he done took all of my family away from me, and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come down to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. And I'd like to give Mr. Vondibrook to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgave him too. And I'd like to embrace him so that he knows that my forgiveness is real. Spontaneously, someone in the courtroom began singing Amazing Grace. And as the elderly woman made her way to the witness stand, but Vondi Brook did not hear the hymn. He had fainted. He was overwhelmed. May God bless you, Philip Hunter.